The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. God, you've been good to us. And here we're looking at the death of Jesus, the very center point of our faith. So I pray that as we look at our King who dies in his love for us, that we would taste the goodness of his love for us. We would experience his love today. We will be renewed and refreshed. God, there are those among us who wonder if you still love them, if you still want them. Jesus, would we see in your death that you want those things. You want us to know you. You want us to feel your love. And so you died in our place. So I pray you would help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is... um, there is something that has gone on in the last 20 years that has not been quite, that has been known but not addressed, that has been commented about but not uh, fully confessed by the criminal in question, and her name is Alanis Morissette. She wrote a song called Ironic over 20 years ago that contained no ironies in it. <laughs> you guys know this song, isn't it ironic, right? It's like rain on your wedding day. Uh, that is not ironic, right? That's a tragic, <laughs> poor planning, right? It's a free ride when you've already paid, right? <laughs> That's not ironic. That's like, you know, like not waiting long enough to let somebody pay for your ride. It's good advice that you just didn't take. That's being stupid. That's, <laughs> That's not being ironic. Um, actually, she just, she did a video recently where she acknowledged that is not, none of those, none of those words or the, the song itself contains any ironies. But irony, irony, the reality of irony is that it is a figure, this is the Oxford English Dictionary, right? If those Oxford people don't know what's English, I don't know what it is. A figure of speech in which the intended meaning is the opposite of that expressed by the words used, right? What's being said is the opposite of what is being um, meant, right? Uh, that's like... Um, like in Breaking Bad, right? You guys know the show Breaking Bad, right? Schroeder or Schrader? Right? How do you pronounce his last name? Schrader? Is anybody a Breaking Bad fan in here? Yeah. Jane, right? yeah. Wait, yeah. Come on, give me some feedback, guys. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, right? Right, he's looking for the guy selling, uh, selling drugs, and it's his brother-in-law, right? And his brother-in-law is always ahead of the game because he knows that his, his, his cop brother-in-law is the one looking for him, right? Or it's like uh, Tom Brady being handed... The fi- his fifth Super Bowl ring by Roger Goodell, right? <laughs> That's ironic. <laughs> this passage is full of ironies. I don't know if you guys have, are picking up on it or you had this sense of like, that's true but not quite true. As we're reading through this passage, there are ironies laced and woven all the way through this passage to drive us into what is going on here at this very critical moment, the very end of the gospel this moment that Jesus has been walking towards his whole life, this is the moment he's been walking towards. And as Matthew records the story for us about who Jesus is and what's being accomplished in the cross, he is weaving it with ironies so that we, on the one hand, see a true statement and on the other hand, know that there is a deeper meaning going on. Right? There is something below the text that's going on. There's something below the passage, the pages of our Bible, that is going on in the death of Christ to help us to understand what is going on that's being accomplished in his death for us. Um, 
I just want to confess right out front that uh, I, I totally ripped off the outline for this sermon uh, from, a, by, from a chapter by this guy named D.A. Carson in his book, Scandalous. So I'm just going to confess out front. The sermon's all mine, but the outline is all his. Uh, most of it, not all of it, but some of it is. And I wanted to help us see these ironies to understand this gospel, what it is for Jesus to die in our place. Because what's happening is that the king of love is dying our death so that we could live in him. Right? That's, that's the main point. The king of love is dying in our place so that we can live in him. And it's shown through these five ironies that we see in this passage. And so we've already read the passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in verse 27. And we're just going to kind of drop down into little details to pick up these ironies. There are five ironies that we see in this passage. The first one is the man who was mocked as king is the king. I don't know if you guys picked up on that when we're reading here verse 27, right? The soldiers and the governors took Jesus in the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion. That's like around 600 soldiers. Right? Just imagine like a military leader showing up. What happens, right? They walk off the plane, and there's all the military folks in their you know, uniforms, and they've got all their weapons, and they're standing up in attention to honor this person. They're mocking Jesus because they're showing up to honor, honor him. And then how do they honor the king? They not only deride him and insult him right, with worse words than any of us have ever said, right? but they beat him, and they, they strip him of all his clothes. And just, just to put this in perspective... Jesus would have just been flogged, which would have been a very disastrous whipping of his back. And so it would have started callousing over and would have ripped that off like a Band-Aid, put a new clothes back on him, cheap, uh, cheap clothes. Like he would have, you know, like uh, probably like Chinese made, you know, like shirts or whatever, thrown those right on him. I, mean, I wear Chinese clothes. Like I'm like big on the Chinese. And they, they mock him, and then they, make, they, they improvise a crown, right? So they're probably, like, in a barracks, which is, like, a real barren place. And all they've got is, like, weeds and, and thorns around. And they grab these thorns, probably thorns of one or two, one, two, three inches long, make a crown. So they make a mock crown for their mockery of a king. And they shove it in his head. And they say, oh, hail, king of the Jews, right? Like they would have said to Caesar, hail, Caesar. Right? They are mocking him to his face. Right? They are mocking him through and through. But they are, on the one hand, mocking him. And on the other hand, hail king of the Jews. Because he is. He is the king. Right? If, you, if you remember the beginning of the book of Matthew, when we start out, Matthew starts out with this phone book of all these people in the Bible, right? the genealogy of the, of the beginning of chapter 1, where he has, the, these are the generations of whatever, 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 right? That's where he starts out, and it's, it's all leading up to saying Jesus is the son. God, God began his work in Abraham, and he continued it in David, who is the king, and then David's son is Jesus, right? Actually, the Hebrew words, the Hebrew letters to make up the name of David are 14, which is why there's 14 generations, and then 14 generations, and then David, and 14 generations, and then Jesus. It's all about chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. It's all about this main point. Jesus is the king that God has been sending. And so when they say, hail king of the Jews, they're mocking him to his face, aren't they? Spitting in his face, insulting him. But it's true. It is the reality of what's going on here. He is the king. And even his disciples didn't understand what it was for him to be the king. His disciples never got it. They were around Jesus a whole lot. 
and they still could never understand. What does it mean for Jesus to be the king? Because these soldiers and our impulses are to think a king is somebody who reigns with an iron fist and just tells everybody what to do and they do it, right? Jesus' kingdom, totally different. Matthew 20, this is where they have the situation where, um, I don't know if you remember when we were looking at this, or we can, you can look at it later, but this is, it's, it's got the head heading of a mother's request, right? This is where a mama cares for her, her two sons, and she's trying to get them in with Jesus because you can tell that he's special. She's like, put one of my sons on your left and one of your sons on your right. And Jesus responds to her, what did you say? But Jesus called all the disciples, because the disciples, right, they got miffed that, they, that, that James and John got to the gate first, right? They wanted the same thing. Jesus called all of them to them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? And the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be, a great, would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the reality of this king is that he comes under and bears the weight of our weakness and sin. This king doesn't lord over his power over us. He takes his power and he comes under our weaknesses. He comes under our needs. He comes under our failures so that he is taking on the weight of all of what it means to be this messed up person. Right, All of this that's all like gross, Jesus comes up underneath that. He says, I'm going to take my power, and I'm going to turn the world upside down, and I'm going to serve you with my power rather than lord it over you. This is the king who comes. The nature of his kingdom is to bear under weak people. Is that, is that you? Do you feel yourself to be somebody who is weak and needy and just like can't seem to get their life together? Right? Like, I'm not, like, I'm not saying, like, can't get your life together or, like, like the, the Dodgers can't get their game together, right? I'm saying, like, can't get your life together or, like, I just can't seem to get, I can't seem to not do those things that I don't want to do. I just can't seem to get rid of these memories that haunt me. I can't seem to get over these hookups and hangups inside of me that just continually kind of sidelined and undercut me. That's the type of weak person that Jesus wants to come underneath. He doesn't take his power and lord it over us. He comes under us. Do you feel ruled, owned by these sins, this weakness, these failures of yours? You know what? Your king in Jesus, he says, yeah, I know you're ruled by that stuff. And the only way to break the gate on that is for me to come under and to take the weight for you and lift it off. That's the type of king that we have. Right? They, they were mocking him as the king. But he actually is the king. But we're going to continue with our story. Because the second irony that we're going to see is the man who is utterly powerless is powerful. <laughs> These are really simple things, right? The man who's mocked as king is the king. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. Right? We, Pick up then back in 32, verse 32 of chapter 27. And they went out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. At this point, Jesus has been flogged. He's been um, beaten. He has endured an incredible amount of physical suffering. And now he walks basically like a quarter mile out of the town 
to go to where he's going to be executed, and he can't even carry his cross. They, they probably actually, Matthew names uh, Simon of Cyrene, probably because he was a disciple that was known in the early church. Because that's the thing with this story, is that it actually happened, and in the story, there's all these actual names of actual people who came from our neighborhoods and towns, right? And they were like, hey, if I want to check this out, I can go talk to Simon of Cyrene. So Simon was probably a disciple who carried, that Jesus couldn't even carry, by the way, he was a carpenter. Like, I'm fairly certain that Jesus was beast, right? He was beast mode. He couldn't even carry, he couldn't even carry his, he couldn't carry his cross out of the town. And while he was there, right, so here we have, they talk about, um, verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. So that was probably basically like, um, kind of like a narcotic, like you go to the dentist and they kind of give you like the stuff to kind of help you numb the pain, right? This was probably basically to help him, like, they were like, this guy's going to suffer enough. We'll just kind of numb the pain a little bit. But Jesus says, no, 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 I, I must experience the full reality of what's about to happen. I must keep my mind clear. I must be in my element. And, but then one final comment here. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. See, the reality is that we often we see pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's got some clothes on. The reality is that Jesus was crucified stark naked. Everything that he had was taken away from him. Everything that he had in life was removed from him. There was nothing left. It was even to the point where people were gambling for it in front of him, right? I mean, it's one thing to have somebody take your wallet at gunpoint and walk away. It's another thing for them to take your wallet at gunpoint, walk away a few blocks away, and then in front of you, gamble your stuff away to other people. How much, how much more powerless would you feel? Jesus is absolutely powerless. And just so we don't get too focused on the, the physical details, the, the way in which the story is written is so that we are focusing on the moral and spiritual dynamics of what's going on on the cross, Right? There are, there are physical dynamics of what's happening when Jesus is crucified because verse 35, and when they crucified him, that's actually just in the, in the Greek, that's one word. It's just crucifying. They, there wasn't a, a drawn out display or picture of what it meant for them to put the nails through his wrists or to put him up on, a, on the cross. It just happened because the point of what Matthew's drawing us to is not that crucifixion is special, but that Jesus is special in what he's accomplishing for us in his crucifixion. See, Jesus goes to the cross, but he doesn't just go alone, right? Verse, um, I'm getting lost here. Verse 37. And his head, they put over, over him the charge. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left. Now Luke records a story that one of these becomes a Christian. They, they trust in Christ right at the end of his life. Matthew doesn't because I think what Matthew is drawing our attention to is that, do you remember what happened just before Jesus crucified? There's this mock trial where Jesus is put up and Barabbas is put up, right? Barabbas was basically a terrorist at the time, and he was trying to uh, usurp the government, and here's Jesus who was absolutely innocent. Barabbas is freed. Jesus is condemned. And so Jesus is probably up on this cross with two of Barabbas's mates. So Jesus has literally taken the place of Barabbas, a thief, a liar, a murderer, 
Somebody who has no right to be in God's presence. Maybe a guy like you or me. But Jesus takes his place as a powerless man who has the true power. That's the nature of the gospel, right? That's the nature of what the gospel is. When, G- when we talk about the gospel, we say Jesus took our sin so that we could be free. It's not because Jesus is like extra nice and we're kind of bad, right? <laughs> it's because we are like Barabbas. We have all forsaken and given God the fist and, and blown God off and had a hard heart towards God. We've rejected God in many different ways, right? <laughs> Church kids... <laughs> who have never done any horrible stuff, have still got that stuff in their hearts, right? Or they've got it in their closets or behind closed doors or in their computer. People who've done it still have it out in their hearts. They're all the same. We have all rejected God, and yet here Jesus is taking the place of a murderer so that he can bear the place of our sins, right? He is powerful and yet powerless, which is why talks about Verse 40, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. They mock him with this statement. But that temple that the Jews had at the time could never deal with the power of sin. It could never deal with that internal dynamic of, yeah, I continually go back to it and God forgives me, but it's not, this part of it's not going away. You know what I'm talking about? That stuff where you have the thoughts, you have the desires, you have the urgings. Just so you slip right into sin without even thinking about it. That power, that dynamic, killing goats and rams and lambs would never, <coughs> never take care of that. This is the true temple. This is where God is dealing out his power to deal with the power of sin so that we can be broken from the power and reign of sin and freed into his presence to live with his power living in us. You see, here these people are mocking Jesus as powerless. Rebuild the temple. He's actually enacting what the temple was intended to do. And just one thing, when we, when we talk about power, sometimes we use that word and we have negative associations, abusive power, demeaning power. Did you notice, you probably picked up on this when we were just saying before, this king with his power is gentle in how he comes to us. His power is gentle for you. His power comes to us in our deepest needs, our our most desperate situations, our most desperate problems in life. And he comes with his gentle power to take away the rule of sin over our lives so that we can be broken people who love him. This, This power is for our good, but it is at the cost of his own life. Right, let's pick up here verse 41. We'll look at verse 41 and 42 and see the third irony. We've been looking at the king who is mocked as king actually is the king, right? This man who is absolutely powerless is powerful. The third one, the man who can't save himself saves others. Verse 41, so also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, you saved others, he can't even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross and we'll believe in him. I mean, just at face value, just begin to kind of think, man, like, can you just, like, shut the mouth? Just, just, just you know, no, no more words now. No more. 
When we talk about the word saving, sometimes we get confused about what that means. Um, like you save a document on your computer, right? Or Benintendi, saving cats for the game, right? It's uh, saving. What does it mean? As Jesus is walking through this gospel, they are making reference to all the times in which he has rescued people from the power of sin and death in their lives. He's raised people from the dead, right? He's healed their physical problems. He's forgiven sin. He's dealt with the effects of the problem, the big problem in the world. Right? The big problem in the world is not Republicans or Democrats. The big problem in the world is not the UN versus America. The big problem in the world is that our hearts hate God by nature and that we are going to die because of that. And Jesus has been saving people all through his life from those effects, from those realities. And yet here they mock him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Just imagine with me for a moment. What would that be like? What would it be like for Jesus to save himself? There's a, there's a, a meme going around on the internet of, of like buff Jesus like ripping him arms, his arms off the cross. Imagine what Jesus would have, like, I mean, he could have just said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm down. I'm out. Peace. Right? He could have just, just walked it. But why didn't he? Why didn't he just walk off this, the cross? The irony in these, this statement is, right, he saved others, he cannot save himself. The irony is that he will not save himself so that he can save others, right? That's the irony, right? He will not save himself and come down so that he could save people like you and me who put him there, right? That's the irony, right? The irony is that Jesus could have come down, but he chooses not to because he will set his Beginning mark, the beginning of his relationship with you and me, the beginning mark of it will be he would save us at the cost of his own life. Right? That is the nature of the gospel. That's why the early church, so the first 300 years after Jesus rose from the grave, the, first, the early church used to call uh, this moment as Jesus reigning from the cross. They would say, look, a king has a throne and he reigns over his subjects from that throne. And so they rightly looked at this story and said, Jesus walked up and chose to stay on the throne so that he could save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from all the, the messed up stuff in our lives. Save us from all the good things that we think could save us, right? right? It's not only just that we've done bad things, it's that we've done good things and think those are enough. <laughs> Jesus comes and reigns over us from the cross because his cross is where we have his blood poured out and the grace of God filling our lives. You see, Jesus dies under the agony of the cross, under the agony of being mocked. He can save others, he can't save himself because he wants us to enjoy the happiness of God forever, right? It's not just that Jesus saves us to like, here's a carbon copy of the best possible version of you on your, your best day. Jesus saves us so that in our own unique ways, all of our unique personalities, right? You don't need to become like me, thankfully. Um, I don't need to become like you. Jesus wants us to be our unique persons, but made happy and flourishing and infinitely joy in God. He wants us to be with him. So he is not saving us like, okay, you're just going to be the same person forever. But he's pulling us out of the depths and darkness of who we are so that we can forever flourish in the presence of God 
and be with him forever, right? That's not kind of like a, I want you kind of like the way you are. He loves who you are, but he wants you happy in God. Could you imagine what your personality would be like, who you would be like if you were infinitely happy in the God who is happy, right? What would that be like? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not, he's saving so that we could live forever with this God, right? This God wants us to be happy in who he is. And the opposite of happiness is despair, which is where we're going to go for the next, <laughs> next irony. Because this is not yet done. This has not yet been accomplished. The man who cries out in despair trusts God. We're going to pick up in verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Right? Sixth hour, darkness came over all the land. That darkness, that's just a picture of, um, this is the way God works. He, he executes his judgment so that he can redeem his people. If you remember from the book of Exodus, back early, early on in the Bible, right? If you go early on in the Bible, you got the book of Genesis, right? That's where everything begins. That's where the word Genesis means. And then in the book of Exodus, which is God's, the main story of God's redeeming saving love. And when he saves his people out of Egypt from slavery and bondage, what he does is he, as a part of his judgment, darkness covers the land of Egypt. That's what this is referring to here. Darkness covers the land because now God's judgment is being poured out on Jesus. Now he is on the cross. He is bearing the weight of our sin and God's wrath focuses itself with laser precision on Jesus and unleashes the wrath of God Upon Jesus, and dark, the, the world itself cannot bear it. The darkness croaches in because Jesus is bearing the sin for you and me. And he cries out, verse 46, under the weight of God's judgment. And in the ninth hour, so it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. Eli, 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 Lamashabachtani. That is, Aramaic for my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? At this moment, is Jesus doubting God? What's going on here? Is he in absolute agony under the wrath of God and Jesus kind of saying, God, why, what's, why have you done this to me? A part of this feels familiar. Uh, I don't know how much you've gone through suffering or what, when you've gone through suffering, um, what your response has been. Michelle and I, we've had, uh, we've had three miscarriages and in every one of them, this encroaching sense of, I hate life. Why have you done this to me, God? I don't know if that's what you've felt before. It just feels like the darkness of this world will never lift and there'll never be a happy day. What's going on? Is that what Jesus is going through here? I think in some ways it is, but Jesus is actually quoting from a Psalm about that feeling. There's never going to be another happy day. Jesus is quoting a psalm, Psalm 22, which starts out with this, this very line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wrestles with this reality of despair in the world, but it doesn't just leave us there, right? Psalm, 40, psalm 22, it has this midpoint. My God, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, who, o you my help, come quickly to my aid, right? God, help me with all of this horrible stuff in my life. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then this line, you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Right? And don't get caught up on all the, let's go back to the other slide, but don't get caught up on all that language of like, all right, dogs and oxen and all that stuff. Like, it's all just images to say, life is horrible and it's got me by the throat and I can't get out of it. God, help me. And then it just changes this line. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's what Jesus is quoting here. At the very moment of his death, he is saying, my God, you are the good and gracious God. But this world is full of brokenness and sin and it will come upon us and crash in our lives in ways of our own doing and the doing of others. God, where are you? Will you help us? And in a sudden moment in the psalm, you have rescued me. It goes from being, where are you, to you have rescued me. In the sudden moment of the cross, God's frown on all of our sin is poured out on Jesus. So at the very moment of his death, it changes. So we now embrace God as our Father. Did you notice that Jesus, all through the book of Matthew, has said, "My my Father, my Father, my Father. And here at the cross being rejected by the Father for our sake, he still reaches out to him. My God, my God, your promises are true. Which is why the psalm actually ends, Psalm 22, go to the next slide. Psalm 22 actually ends the sudden effect of this work of God in Jesus' life. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, right? This is why we stuff our face with food at King's Cross. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. Right, this is not saying that you get whatever you want, but it's saying that you flourish with God. I shall, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Right, That verse is lived out this morning at King's Cross because of what Jesus did on the cross. Right, What Jesus did on the cross will be told to every generation of all people everywhere until he returns. <laughs> And so this joy of his, of his victory over Satan's sin and death must continue to be told in Manchester until everybody's heard about it, until we are growing in it, until other people know, because Jesus purchased it here. Right? The man who cries out in despair truly trusted God. I don't want to move on yet. I just want to draw our attention one more thing here. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. And then 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is the moment that Jesus dies in our place under the wrath of God. The relationship between God and his people immediately changes. The temple where God had been and kept distinct from us, now he unleashes his presence in a unique and powerful way through the death of Christ. Not separated from us, but living among us. Now our God doesn't just live in a house in the middle of our community. God lives in our hearts among our community. Do you, do you want God in your life? Like, I don't know if you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, but do you want him in your life? You see, Actually, God dealt with the barrier between you and God. Sometimes I have friends who aren't Christians or friends who are kind of thinking about where they're at with Jesus. And I was like, yeah, but why doesn't God just show me that he loves me? Why doesn't God just talk? Why doesn't God 
just come down and just say, I'm real and I want you to know me. It's like, actually, he did. That's what he's doing here. God has shown us what he is like. He is a God who is holy, right? We cannot dismiss the holiness of God, but he deals with the problem of our sin with his holiness by taking the blow that our sin deserves so that he can be with us. Do you want to know life and joy in your own life with him? This is who you look to. You look to Jesus. Spurgeon, our friend, our English Spurgeon from the 19th century, he says this, brethren, very Victorian English, right? Brethren, when you are troubled, rest with us by looking to Calvary. And if at first glance does not quiet you, look and look and look again. For every grief will die where Jesus died. Not to Bethlehem where the stars of Christmas were born do we look for our greatest comfort, right? Not that God became a man, but we look to the place where the sun was darkened at midday at the face of eternal, when the face of eternal love was veiled, right? We look to the death of Jesus in our Christian life or to know who, Jesus, who God is, to understand who God is and his love for us. What does it look like? So if, if you're wrestling with, I am a weak and sorry excuse of a Christian, right? The point of the gospel is not to say, suck it up and do better tomorrow, right? The point of the gospel is to say, look to Jesus, look to him dying in your place so that you can experience the unveiled smile of God in your life. Not because of what you've earned or deserved, but because of who he is and what he's done for you, right? We want happiness, God wants us to be happy. The problem has been dealt with when the face of eternal love is veiled, right? This Jesus, when he dies in our place, he puts a bedrock so strong for joy in our lives. Yeah, we might struggle with depression. We might have sad days. But our source of life and joy isn't because we've accomplished something at work or done something for our family, or been successful at life. Our joy is because Jesus died in our place, something we could never have done, to give us not just right, happiness in this life, but eternal joy with God forever. And so we're going to end this passage by looking at this fifth irony, because the cross is not the ending point. The man who was put to death, put death to death. Now, that's weirding me out with the grammar. The man who was put to death, put death, the great evil of people dying, he put that to death. He notice, you notice here verse 52, and behold, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split, and then 52, The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Then the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. And they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And then goes on to talk about there were many women there looking at from a distance followers of Jesus, right? Mary and Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the son of Zebedee. And then it talks about Joseph of Arimathea. 
You see, the moment that Jesus dies, things happen. And people are drawn together. And you know what's interesting about this, this kind of list of characters? Right? The centurion who probably crucified Jesus now confesses Jesus, right? Right. Women who at the time and the culture were valued lower than slaves, right? Their, their testimony would not be allowed in a court of law, right? They are the ones that the gospel affirms and validates and says, they're some of the first witnesses of the gospel, right? They see who Jesus is, right? You have a rich man who's witnessing the, witnessing the life of Jesus. This is why we talk about King's Cross being an island of misfit toys. We have young and old, rich and poor, um, good-looking, not good-looking. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of people because just like the cross of Christ drew this band of misfits together to say this is the Son of God who has died in our place. So the church should be like that. A bunch of weird people who have no reason to be together because of who Jesus is, right? That is what we've, that's what's happening here. And it's because the curse that would separate us from each other, separate us from God, is being reversed in the death of Jesus, right? The death of Jesus puts to death all the things that would separate us from each other and God and begins to reverse it to bring to life people who are dead inside and who will one day, just so you know, you're only going to rent your grave, right? Your grave will be rented for a little while and then you'll step out of it and you'll see Jesus face to face. Just like these people do, right? Jesus will raise us from the dead, right? Death no longer has a claim in the king's kingdom, right? Death is no longer allowed where Jesus reigns, right? Death does not have, it's not even kind of like, like a dual citizenship, right? <laughs> Death has no place in the kingdom of God because the king of life dies so that his people might live with him. Death cannot stand victorious when the king of life has willingly died. Jesus dies powerless, mocked, beaten, and forsaken. Right? Jesus dies. He dies without any power. He dies mocked as being like a fake king. He dies mocked being, um, right? I'm losing my notes here. He dies, can't even save other people, right? You guys are tracking with me. He dies in those things so that people who are powerless to change themselves, people who feel so ruled and controlled by the sin and shame of their lives, people who feel despair and desperate and half dead, those are the people that he brings together into his kingdom to be his family. That is who the king wants. People who are broken and desperate and needy. People who should die powerless and under despair. But he dies in their place so that he can be a powerful king who trusted in God in our place to save us from Satan's sin and death. Right? This king of life is the one who dies on this throne to give us the grace that we so desperately need. So what's the application? What do you do with this? Let's sing about who he is, guys, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you died in our place. We thank you that you, the king of life, willingly died in our place so that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. Father, I pray that anybody who's suffering with despair or weakness or just that sin that keeps coming at them, 
I pray that you would turn our eyes this morning to see the King of life who willingly died in our place so that we could experience joy in your presence. Would you meet us now? In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.